welcome to Times New Women, a podcast where we chat about what's going on for women in the world today. I'm Molly. And I'm Ellie. And thanks for being with us. Uh, That was way better than last time. We're already learning. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So this week, I think it was very easy for us to find a topic that we wanted to talk about because... Unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah, deeply, unfortunately. I know you and I have like a Google doc with 78 topics that we want to talk about, but this unfortunately, uh, you know, kind of trumped them all when we saw the leak of the draft opinion from the Supreme Court in the U.S. um, that would overturn Roe v. Wade, which was the landmark decision from 1973 that uh, abortion rights in the states are set on. And um, pretty disturbingly, 13 states already have trigger laws in place to immediately restrict abortion if Roe v. Wade is overturned. So we're going to get into this a bit today. Um, We'll talk about the American context, and then we'll bring that into the Canadian context, obviously, because that's what we know a bit better. And that's where we both live. So I, um, as per usual, had a little quote I wanted to start with um, that I thought was really compelling. Um, We have spent years, decades, trying to convince the government that women deserve to control our own bodies. We've shared our most personal experiences, recounting stories of sexual abuse and domestic violence, financial hardship, and medical traumas. We've explained calmly and politely how the ability to choose if and when to have children can be the most determinative factor in a woman's life. We've provided research showing that those who are denied abortions are more likely to stay with violent partners and suffer financial hardships. We've shown that abortion is safe, much more so than pregnancy, and rebutted the misinformation around the procedure over and over again. But let's be clear, that's what the end of Roe means. It means that pregnant people are second-class citizens, unable to enjoy the same rights as others, their personhood secondary to a zygote. It means that everything feminists warn you about is coming and has already started. Hospital workers calling the police over suspicious miscarriage, miscarriages, Women being arrested for failing to deliver healthy babies, prosecutors digging through women's Google searches to find evidence of abortion pills being ordered, teenage incest survivors being forced to bear their father's children, rapists suing their victims who seek abortions, and prison sentences for mothers who couldn't afford more children. Unless you think that this is uh, an exaggerating quote, we will touch on the fact that uh, Missouri is actually exploring legislation to allow the um, father's family uh, to sue a pregnant woman. So theoretically they could sue if she terminated the pregnancy. So that is terrifying. And that quote is from Jessica Valenti in her recent newsletter this week. Ellie, did you want to weigh in on the Roe v. Wade? Oh my God. From this week, how are you feeling? It's just devastating. Like how can we go move backwards and undo progress and sorry I'm speechless like this is horrible and how are the pregnant people the ones who have to bear all of this burden and they being threatened to be sued if they terminate the pregnancy but then on the other hand like okay 100% I think abortion should be legalized and people should have the right to choose but if they're gonna force women to have or pregnant people to have this baby like what about the person who impregnated them 
why don't they start to do DNA testing for every person in the entire country. And then you do a paternity test. And then they also have to be involved for until the child is like 18. It makes no sense. Cause I saw a tweet that sums it up so well too. Like only the U S forces you to give birth while forcing you to pay tens of thousands of dollars to give birth while not letting you have time off to give birth. Oh my God, how can they force this to happen and then not have any supports in place? But the real point is that they shouldn't be forcing people to have babies. That is <sighs> the most like succinct, you know, encapsulation yeah. of the extreme cognitive dissonance of this situation. Um, I just, I had one more thing, like one more quote I actually found that aligns with that. And I thought was so telling um, from historian Jillian Frank, uh, who said that conservatives love to talk about sex and children, and they love to protect imaginary children from all sorts of sexual dangers. And the con- contradiction, of course, is that they're not so good about actually giving welfare and material resources to better children's lives across the board. They just want to be in perpetual anxiety about children and use that as a mode of policing all sorts of social boundaries and reaffirming certain power relationships. So when we talk about, you know, I think forcing women to give birth and then you don't support them once they actually have the children, you know, there's no, there's no daycare that, you know, subsidized daycare for women and things like that. Structurally, they are, uh, keeping them in more of a subservient role. And, you know, we talked about that a little bit, but one thing I came across when we were looking into this, which I'm ashamed to admit, I didn't know a ton about was, um, Henry Morgenthaler, who is one of the most key people, uh, in the history of the fight for abortion in Canada. And he was actually a Holocaust survivor who, um, fled from the Holocaust and went on to perform hundreds of illegal abortions in Canada in the seventies, eventually went to prison in Quebec for 10 months, um, and was part of a landmark case that changed the, uh, you know, delivery of abortion and legalization while the decriminalization of abortion in Canada. And, that was um, a decade after Roe versus Wade. So, you know, the states had their Roe v. Wade court um, case. And then we had R.V. Morgenthaler, which was um, Canada's landmark decision for abortion access, which made it clear that the government could not dictate how or where women accessed abortion. Um, so, yeah, I, I really got to dive into that a little bit and what the landscape of Canada looked like at that time, which is really scary to picture. Like there were, you know, doctors getting shot and clinics being firebombed and yeah, but also the courageous women that set up abortion access across Canada and Morgan Toller would like travel across Canada to help set up these clinics. So I think like, it's, I mean, maybe Canada heritage moments, if they're still doing those, we need a few of those is, Oh my God. Yes. That'd be great. (laughs) But then the conservatives will shut it down. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my God. Well, weren't, didn't they say, um, you know, when the Roe v. Wade stuff was coming out that, uh, the conservatives were told to not even comment on it because they just knew there was no good they were going to do in that situation. Um, and yeah, I, I want to talk about that a little bit later because I know there is the conservative leadership race happening right now in Canada and they had a debate this week 
and um, the topic of abortion came up. And I have to say that some of the responses were kind of disturbing. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So abortion was decriminalized in Canada in 1988, but we don't have any laws like ensuring access to abortions. Um, and that's why it is kind of scary, too, and why it should be discussed in these political um context because the future can still be the future of abortions in Canada is not set in stone like that can change so women do have access to safe abortions in Canada supposedly in theory (laughs) but the reality is that it's not necessarily easy to access like um the geography like where you live in Canada really uh, impacts how accessible abortions are. Uh, most of them, abortion clinics are like, well, urban centers. And also they're very close to the border to the States. So anyone who's in Northern provinces or like Northern parts of provinces have limited access. And, um, I was getting some, I got confused a bit because I was looking at abortion clinics, which is different than hospitals that also provide abortion services. But, not all hospitals do that. There's also misinformation, like, and this might change per province, but some provinces, like, you don't need a referral for an abortion, but not all people know that. And then doctors kind of sometimes don't give out that information freely. And so people don't know how to access it if their doctor won't refer them, even though they might not even need that referral necessarily. Abortion access, it's limited to women who are aware of the services, but it's also limited to people who are permanent residents or citizens. Like it's harder to access these services. Um, If, uh, yeah, you don't have permanent residency, you'll be paying more out of pocket to access it. And I didn't even think of the fact that people don't know, or there's some people that don't know how to access it. And you think one of the things I always see are the pregnancy crisis centers Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which it's my understanding that a lot of them operate their pro-life, but they operate as if to say, are you pregnant and in crisis come in, we'll help you out. And then they deter, you know, the person who's pregnant from, you know, accessing reproductive health services. So yeah, I think the intersection of like, you know, the religious ideology and healthcare has just created this like gross swamp that a lot of people have trouble navigating. Um, and one of the things I was stunned to find out looking at this was PEI didn't even allow abortion until January, 2016. So, I mean, when the, um, ruling came in Canada in 88, that was meant to allow better access PEI doubled down and declared that the province would be free of abortion. Um, And there was a group in 2010 that did a research project to document the harms that 30 years of an abortion ban had done. And um, I mean, it's like heart wrenching to hear some of the, you know, the stories from the women, like deep emotional and physical harms. Um, of women, you know, having to leave the province to access reproductive health services. And many never came back because, you know, they couldn't stay in a province that, you know, discriminated against them like that. So 
sometimes in Canada, we're so quick to say, you know, we're so fundamentally different, but the fact that abortion is left up to the provinces to that degree is really problematic. And when I was researching this, I mean, why am I, why am I surprised that I'm triggered by a national post headline? Um, but I saw a headline that said, uh, liberals wrong about abortion rights. Canada doesn't need a law to protect them. And then like the subline under that is Canadians are happy with the status quo. So this, uh, you know, the writer is arguing that we don't need to do any additional work to protect, you know, reproductive rights in Canada because, uh, Trudeau came out after the Roe v. Wade um, leak and said that the liberals were going to do more to protect women in Canada and they were going to enshrine abortion. Um, and then of course the national post is like, we did a survey and people are pretty happy with it. It's fine. And, uh, you know, this is exactly what we're talking about when you leave it up to each province, then you get situations where, you know, you need to leave the province to obtain an abortion. So I thought, I thought that was really telling. And I know you touched on the problem of access, you know, where rural women, indigenous women, poor women, women in the North in the East, uh, it's difficult for them to travel to get abortions. And, uh, the younger, there was a study, you know, looking at it, the younger and poorer woman was the further she had to travel to get an abortion. Um, yeah, I had one more point I wanted to make in terms of provincial differences between access currently. Um, well, recently, uh, another thing I read was about a private member's bill in Alberta in 2018 uh, that wanted to expand the conscience clause, which was that a doctor who objected to abortion would not have to refer uh, the patient wow. on to someone that could help them. So when the national post publishes something like we don't need to worry, you know, the status quo is fine. And they literally use the word status quo. Um, and then we see bills like this, you know, being put forward. And I think it's deeply important to a not be complacent, but be to push further for access that can't be eroded in the ways that Roe v. Wade was when I was looking at kind of the legal background of Roe v. Wade um, and they were talking about the differences between that and Canada and how from the time that the Roe v. Wade ruling came down, you know, anti-abortion activists have been chipping away at it constantly. There's always this pressure against it. So I think we always have to be vigilant and we always have to be fighting to make sure that unfortunately, our rights aren't being chipped away at constantly. Part of what I think is most, one of the most disturbing things about this, the leak of this is that it's probably just reinvigorated the anti-abortion crowd. I know there's a rally in Ottawa this weekend that happens every year, but is even more ecstatic now. I saw an interview with a 20-year-old guy that was like, we're going to save everyone. And this is great. The States is getting on board and we're going to get on board and really given them a new drive to see that. So I think maybe we need to have that equal amount, if not more of drive and determination to improve access um, and make sure that access cannot be taken away. A hundred percent. We need to keep advocating and pushing 
a big quote that I wish would get through to people who are anti-abortion supporters is that abortion bans don't stop abortion, but they do create inequality in access who are inequality in who has access to abortion. So they're just going to keep happening, but in unsafe ways. Oh my God. Yes. Absolutely that. Absolutely that. What you started off with by saying, you know, the state's forcing women to have children and then charging them insane amounts of money to do it and providing no support. When I was reading, the states also has the highest maternal mortality rate of any industrialized nation, right? So they're just making it even worse now. I mean, I, yeah. I wish I could remember the stat or that I looked it up, but I feel like a couple of years ago, I saw something about, it was something about women in Texas. It was even worse than the rest of the states, or it might've been, um, black women in Texas. Like, Oh, I'll have to, maybe I can look it up and add it in. Cause it was, it was absurd. Like, yeah, it doesn't make sense that there are so many women dying from pregnancies. I, th- I think it was a lack of access of health care during the pregnancy or. And we do know obviously that banning abortion only bans safe abortions. It just pushes mm-hmm. them further into, you know, marginalization. And one of the things I wanted to briefly talk about was Ireland. I think that's a good example of what happens in a country when abortion has historically been criminalized. And I think a lot of us know about the women that had to travel to England to get abortions, the just ripple effects of the shame and the secrecy and the silence for women who were forced to leave to access abortion. The fact that they would come back to the country, they would have no medical support once they got this procedure because they couldn't disclose to their doctor mm-hmm. that they've had this procedure. Uh, you know, and the other part of that is the fallen women homes. So the homes where women would be sent, you know, run by nuns to have children. And they were just now finding like, huge burials of children at these sites. So, you know, and they were doing illegal adoptions from them. So we, we can see cases from all of these countries about like the absolute proven harms to criminalizing abortion. And yet it still continues to be something that people are aiming for when all of the evidence tells you that it's completely detrimental for Ireland. I think they had a Abortion had been criminalized since the 1800s, no surprise, but in 83, they had a referendum that amended the constitution that made a mother's life equal to the life of the fetus. And that had huge implications for whether a doctor could intervene to save the life of a mother. That was obviously heavily campaigned by pro-life Catholic organizations that were also trying to limit access to contraception. And there was a case of a woman, uh, Savita Halapinava, a dentist living in Ireland who died in 2012 in her early thirties. She had miscarried and she died from sepsis after being refused an abortion. And she was literally told in the hospital, this is a Catholic country. And uh, her death was so atrocious that it really mobilized the country. And they ended up having another referendum. They had the biggest youth vote in Irish history to repeal this. So abortion is not wonderfully accessible in Ireland now, but you can access it only up until 12 weeks or unless the life or health Mm -hmm. of the mother is at risk, but it's still you, you need two different appointments with a doctor. There's no safe access zone. So protesters can be right outside mm. the clinics and very notably all abortions outside of that framework are still criminalized. So reading that you think we know 
the absolute amount of suffering that is going to affect, you know, pregnant people from decisions like this and somehow theology and politics, the intersection of them just keeps chugging forward to completely ignore that. So that was very good information to take in. It's yeah. Talking about politics. Did you want to talk about the political leader race for the conservatives? Yeah. God, do I ever. (laughs) (laughs) Did you see any of the debate or did you see anything about Uh. it? No, I can't really weigh in. I just know what my partner told me. So it might be biased. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, probably not, but I'm just full disclosure. I I don't know anything firsthand. (laughs) No, well, I mean, a, I would, I would love to know his thoughts on it. Um, (laughs) But I, the only, the thing I was paying the most attention to was the fact that, uh, abortion access came up during it. And, um, all candidates except for Leslin Lewis indicated that they are either pro-choice or that they would not introduce legislation on abortion. But I do know that another one of the candidates whose name is French, and I'm so sorry because I know that you can speak French much better. Um, Paul Levere, yeah. uh refused to answer the question and just kind of danced around it. And he said like, I want to leave that decision up to people or something. So I just, A, I can't believe they have even one candidate that would be willing to repeal abortion laws uh, because not even Stephen Harper attempted that. So the Mm -hmm. fact that Lewis is in favor of that, and then they have another candidate who won't even answer a question on it during the debates. It's just terrifying to think that these are possible leaders of a federal party. I don't know. I'm trying to keep an eye on that because I think the conservative party has been in turmoil for such a period of time. Now they haven't found where they want to be on the right. And I think, I think they're trying to find their footing and how they're going to appeal to voters. And I think that's where Aaron O'Toole maybe was ousted because he had flip-flopped on a few issues. But yeah, I think the conservative party is really finding, finding where it wants to be on the political spectrum right now. Is it closer to the liberal party? Is it closer to the Mm -hmm. people's party? I know there's people on either side, but obviously the leader of that party is going to have the most influence on that. So I feel like I'm watching closely to see what comes out of that. Yeah. And this is not based in fact, but I don't know. I feel like it's likely that the conservative party could be elected next. Like, isn't that the history of politics? It'll be liberals for a while, then conservatives and liberals and conservatives. So I don't know. I feel like it's possible they'll be elected next. And what will that mean for women's reproductive health? Terrifying Um, things. Absolutely. I agree with you. I know the history of our politics, unfortunately, especially because the liberals did not deliver on their promise of voting reform in the last election, that it typically just swings back and forth between liberal and conservative. Believe it or not, we do have other parties that could be elected. (laughs) Um, Who knew? Yeah, I think I I think we were saved in some part by the last election for the vote splitting between the People's Party and the Conservative Party. Mm-hmm. I, I'm terrified to see who leads the Conservative Party and what direction they take that in. An important thing to note about the Roe v. Wade, the tidal wave of regression in terms of rights uh, doesn't just end at abortion. Oh, yes. Good point. Yeah. Everything I've been reading has been saying, you know, it's linked to marriage equality. It's linked to mm-hmm. access to birth control. Um, 
practically anything that doesn't uphold white supremacy or heteropatriarchy, they're coming for that. You know, the rights are being eroded. We're seeing it happen in real time. So Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's not going to stop at that, which some people have said, you're just going to roll this back and that's all it's going to be. And I'm like, no, 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 it's it's not going to stop there. Yeah. Okay. I have a final point. Yes. Maybe that'll be a good place. I don't know if you watch SNL, but I I missed out on their like golden years where they were incredible, but I've really started watching it lately. And last weekend it was uh, Benedict Cumberpatch hosted, but their cold open, like their opening skit was about abortion. And it was incredible. In my opinion, I thought it was amazing. They, um, it took place like whatever in the 13th century, because that's kind of um, Justice Samuel A. Alito Jr. is citing legal theory from the 13th century England as part of the reason, like, you know, trying to support his why we need to get rid of abortion. But anyway, so it was a brilliant skit in uh, the 13th century, but um, and just showing how many ridiculous laws were in place then. So why should we hold on to this Good other point. law? Wait, yes. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Like. I, I, yeah. Anyway, watch it. If you can find a clip of it, I highly recommend. But what I was going to say is that they did have some words of hope, which I think will be a good place to end on is that no matter how many choices they take away from women, we've always got the choice to keep fighting. So let's keep fighting Molly. Oh my God. I love it. That's perfect. Okay. Thank you. I'm going absolutely going to watch that. And what a wonderful sentiment to have at the end of this. Cause I know it's, it's hard to slog through it and it's hard to talk about it, but also everything we enjoy today, people before us fought for. Right. And I think we need to remember that we are tasked with making the world a better place for the next generations to come. So Love it. Perfect ending message. Should we transfer on to what we're into yeah. this week? Yeah. What are you into this week, Molly? Sounds good. I I am into this book called Ooh. When We Lost Our Heads by Heather O'Neill. It's this fantastic book about uh, two girls in Montreal um, during, I think, like the late 1800s, maybe. Just like the, the golden days of Montreal when it was, you know, up and coming and it had like, you know, untold riches at one end and untold squalor at the other end. There are so many amazing things I could say about this book, but number one, every main character is a woman Yes. Uh, in the book. The men are like barely secondary characters in it, which is fantastic. And the characters are so phenomenal. Like everyone you read about, you like something about them. They're really complex. And I, I, bookmarked a quote that I thought was actually very uh, fitting for our topic this week. One of the characters is a midwife for a brothel and then decides that her role is to educate women about their bodies and about pregnancy and things like that. So anyways, I thought this was a, a good line from it. She believed the only way women could feel desires and allow them to be productive would be if they understood their bodies. She wanted them to know about withdrawal and contraception. If women could not control their reproductive reproductive organs, they could not be free. There was no use fighting for any other rights if these were not secured. They were prisoners to their own children. They simply could not take up any space in culture. They could not be scientists. They could not be politicians. They could not be artists. I, oh my gosh, 
it is just like the most powerful woman book ever, like women's rage, women's art, women's love, love it so much. Heather O'Neill, you're a genius. Thank you for writing this fantastic book. Highly recommend it. (laughs) Very cool. Is Heather O'Neill a Canadian author? Yes. Yeah. I think she's actually from Montreal. Uh, yep. Born and raised in Montreal. So she's phenomenal. I think this is the first one of her books I've read. So love it. And what about you? What was What was the thing you were into this week? Okay, so I think what I'll say I was into this week and um, it's not, oh my gosh, gardening. Maybe because I I don't feel like I'm a gardener. I have a black thumb. I have such a hard time keeping my plants alive. I have a friend who tried to make me feel better by saying apparently a lot of things didn't survive last summer because of the heat wave. So maybe that's why some of my... (laughs) (laughs) plants didn't make it but I just planted a couple of beautiful hostas that I really hope will take this year because I have this shady patch where nothing will grow and I'm just so happy to see them now in the ground with a couple other pretty annuals around them that are like shade friendly so fingers crossed they make it Oh my God. I love it. And like, also I love hostas. My place is North facing and they're like ferns and hostas are the best things ever because they seem to grow really well in like extremely damp soil. Um, so they've been surviving. So good for you for learning something new. I find like gardening's hard. Like that is a lifelong thing. Yeah. It's over. I, maybe it was good. I think I got really lucky one year I planted a bunch of like random things and they survived. So I was like, oh, I got this (laughs) next year. Like nothing survived. So yeah, it's definitely a learning curve, but. uh, But you're right. Last summer was like the worst season for plants. I think like nothing could have survived it like 35 degrees with no rain for days and days and days. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Your poor plants, but I would love to see pictures. uh, If you want to send me them, (laughs) I don't think I've seen any pictures. So that'd be amazing. For sure. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Well, I think, you know, talking to you about this stuff, I feel much more hopeful. I think if I just was reading the headlines and, you know, I would avoid the national post first of all, but it's nice to talk to like-minded people and say that, you know, Mm -hmm. we're in it together and we're going to do everything we can to keep improving things and keep making things better and um, planting some nice hostas along the way. So. All right. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up for this week. And um, yeah, just to say thanks for tuning in and uh, yeah, stay vigilant. Don't be complacent.